this is David Beeson welcoming you to Ingredients of Defeat, Chapter 63 of A History of England. It's an attempt to remove the myths around Britain's defeat in America by seeing if we can understand its context more fully. Generally, when we talk about the American Revolutionary War, we approach it, understandably enough, as American. In this view, once the French had joined in, the issue was simply to bring their strength to bear to help the Americans to victory, which finally happened at the Battle of Yorktown. None of that is false. In fact, I'm going to take it as the starting point of this episode, though I hope that'll just show how partial a view it is, and that the picture becomes much more interesting when we complete it. So here's the standard story. France entered the war in March 1778. General Henry Clinton, Sir William Howe's successor as British Army commander in America, evacuated Philadelphia on the 18th of June to concentrate his forces in New York. Clinton then sent one of his generals, Charles Cornwallis, southwards to South Carolina, where he seized Charleston in an effective amphibious operation. You may remember the British belief that, while the northern colonies were unshakably rebellious, the South could be won back to loyalty. Cornwallis set out to secure that loyalty by storming through the Carolinas and Virginia, doing a lot of damage and upsetting a lot of people. It was a US president, Teddy Roosevelt, who would later say that if you've got them by the balls, their hearts and minds will follow. Unfortunately, when you're kicking people in the balls, as Cornwallis was, the effect on hearts and minds is rather less positive. Meanwhile, French land forces under the Comte de Rochambeau had joined up with Washington's army and, after debating whether to attack Clinton in New York, as Washington had favoured, decided instead to take on Cornwallis, now in Virginia, as his position seemed weaker, making him easier to defeat. Clinton decided to withdraw Cornwallis and his men and ordered him to a coastal position ready for naval evacuation. Cornwallis chose Yorktown. Now the French Navy was able at last to strike a decisive blow at the Battle of the Chesapeake on the 5th of September 1781. Neither side was able to destroy the other, but it was still a significant French success since they drove the British ships away leaving Cornwallis isolated. With no prospect of reinforcement or evacuation, after some heavy fighting, Cornwallis surrendered on the 19th of October. He had lost as many as 900 men killed or wounded, and he led around 7,500 into captivity. In terms of prisoners taken, it was worse than Saratoga four years earlier, and nearly as bad in casualties. So that's the account of the war as a predominantly American affair. And it's all true. What's false is the belief I shared until I looked into it more closely myself that Yorktown confirmed American independence. It didn't. The British Parliament voted to discontinue any further offensive operations against America four months after Yorktown, but the Treaty of Paris that finally sealed American independence and ended the war wasn't signed until September 1783. Yorktown is often seen as an American victory with French support. Certainly, George Washington had a slightly larger land force there than France. 
But counting the 29 French ships whose contribution had been so vital, and it would appear far more as a French victory obtained in conjunction with the Americans. Seeing it that way has the merit of much more closely reflecting the British dilemma of the time. Once France was in the war in 1778, followed by Spain in 1779 and Holland in 1780, Britain was no longer just fighting a war against American rebels. It was in another world war like the Seven Years' War earlier. America was now just one theatre of that war. The historian John Robert Seeley called the period 1689 to 1815 the Second Hundred Years' War. Like the first one, it set England, later Britain, against France. It lasted well over a hundred years, and it involved not one campaign but several separate wars, eight of them in the second edition. A major difference is that this time around the two nations weren't simply European powers, but headed colonial empires with global reach. Let's not forget that behind the rhetoric of an empire of liberty, the original concern of Britain's expansion overseas was simply business. A particularly naked example of Britain's overseas concerns being essentially commercial is the East India Company, a private company that now controlled a significant empire of its own and was using it only to suck it dry for profit. Britain's commercial empire needed safe sea lanes. The Seven Years' War, as well as securing Britain its imperial base in America and, indirectly through the East India Company, in India, had made it the world's greatest maritime power. The American Revolution represented no threat to British maritime trade. What certainly did, on the other hand, was war with the other European powers. And boy, they wanted to make good on that threat. No one else in Europe was happy with Britain's ascendancy. They all felt that it was upsetting the balance of power. They viewed it as vital to reset that balance. Least happy of all was Britain's old rival, France. The previous war had cost the French their holdings in North America and their position in India. Now they wanted something back. Not those unprofitable American possessions, which had never been more than a drain on resources. What they wanted was something far more profitable, such as a British sugar island or two in the Caribbean. In India, France still had a few trading posts and a client state in Mysore. If it could keep the British at bay, it might rebuild its position there too. The Spanish, as ever, wanted Gibraltar back, and Minorca too. Minorca, I hear you cry, didn't they reconquer the island in the run-up to the Seven Years' War? Didn't that poor old Admiral Bing get shot for that loss? Yes, yes, you're right. But Britain won that war and recovered Minorca in the final peace treaty. Now Spain wanted it back. In the Americas, Spain also rather fancied getting back Florida, which it had been forced to trade in return for Havana, Cuba, occupied by the British in the same war. It was also worried about British expansionism. Captain James Cook, the explorer, had been sailing around the Pacific, charting territories that would later be made British colonies, such as Australia and New Zealand. With its holdings on the Pacific coastline, from the tip of South America right up into California, Spain saw the ocean as its private preserve and wasn't amused about Britain nosing around in it. 
As for the Dutch, they wanted to trim the wings of a major rival in Far East commerce, and they wanted to be able to trade freely with Britain's enemies, such as France and Spain. Britain had rather hoped Russia might be prepared to provide soldiers to occupy its enemies on the continent in return for money, as Austria and Prussia had done before. But Russia was having none of it. Instead, with Sweden, Denmark and some minor powers, it formed a League of Armed Neutrality to protect the rights of all its members to trade with any state they wanted. With no one to distract them with fighting on the continent, Britain's enemies could focus on the naval war. At sea, too, Britain was in a weak state after 15 years of skimping and saving. Turn the clock back 30 years to the end of the War of Austrian Succession and we'd find the Spanish Navy down to 22 warships and the French to 31. Britain had 126, over twice as many as the other two combined. France and Spain, however, had been rebuilding their navies while Britain had been cutting expenditure. By 1778, when France went to war with the British, it had 52 ships of the line, the most powerful, to Britain's 66. So Britain still had a small edge. But if France could persuade Spain with its 50 ships to join the war against Britain, the balance would tip its way. That happened the following year. Britain launched a major shipbuilding campaign because it had to cover its shipping lanes to the Far East, its precious sugar islands in the West Indies, and its strongholds on Gibraltar and Menorca. Why, it even had a slaving station in Senegal to defend, and we've already seen that slaves were a key element in the European transatlantic trade. Even the defence of the home islands proved a hell of a challenge. French and Spanish ships could sail at will into the English Channel, threatening invasion. Only the poor states of their ships and crews, and some major strategic errors by the commanders, prevented them landing troops in what would have been a devastating blow. Britain's overstretched navy was in no state to pull off the same trick as in the Seven Years' War by applying a blockade so strict that the French navy couldn't even put to sea. Indeed, it was when Britain had to pull ships away from the Channel in order to escort a resupply convoy to Gibraltar that a French fleet could sail unmolested out of its northern port of Brest and across the Atlantic. Its aim was to support an invasion of the British sugar island of Jamaica. On the way, however, it sailed into Chesapeake Bay and provided invaluable help to the American cause by denying British assistance to the beleaguered army under Cornwallis. That takes us back neatly to where we were before at the Franco-American victory at Yorktown. So let's now revisit what we were saying about the American war earlier, but this time in a wider global context. France recognised the United States as an independent nation in February 1778. Britain declared war in March. The French sent a fleet to the West Indies which beat the British off the island of Grenada. It made attempts to seize Newport, Rhode Island and to retake Savannah, Georgia from the British. Though these attacks were unsuccessful, the threat the fleet posed led to the British evacuating Philadelphia and concentrating their forces in New York. Even so, following the success of Clinton's operation to capture Charleston, his deputy Cornwallis, who he'd left behind with an army, was winning battle after battle in the South. 
things seemed to be going Britain's way again, until he ran up against the combined force of the French General Rochambeau and George Washington. Even then, his position only really turned hopeless when that French fleet the Royal Navy couldn't bottle up in Brest showed up in Chesapeake Bay and made his relief or evacuation impossible. The conclusion? The surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown was less to do with Washington and Rochambeau's military genius than with Britain's loss of supremacy at sea. Had the Royal Navy been able to blockade the French as it had in the previous war, it would not have been confronted by that fleet in Chesapeake Bay and could have rescued Cornwallis. Would that have avoided an eventual British defeat? That would have been a matter of American fighting spirit. Americans were no keener on paying taxes to their own government than to the British, leaving Congress broke and with no access to credit. The Continental Army was short of supplies and weakened by desertions. Cornwallis's victories were sapping morale. William Pitt the Elder had said Britain couldn't conquer America. But if America lost the will to fight on, it could still lose. Yorktown didn't so much win the American Revolution as pull it back from the very brink of failure. That was principally because the victory came at just the right time. Britain had suffered a defeat of the same scale at Saratoga four years earlier, but had bounced back. Now, though, Britain lacked the resources to replace so large a force. In 1778, Britain had 65% of its land forces in North America. In 1780, that had dropped to 29%. Meanwhile, the proportion of its forces in Britain itself had climbed from 26% to 55%. Britain had gone on to the defensive, as you'd expect with enemy fleets sailing past its doorstep and threatening invasion. When the British Parliament voted to discontinue offensive operations in America, it was simply recognising the reality it faced. Yorktown was only one factor in that reality. Far more significant was the fact that Britain was fighting for its life after losing its mastery of the seas. That wasn't down to the Americans, but to Britain's own failure to spend the money it took to maintain its maritime supremacy. Cheapskates, it turns out, can't stay top dogs for long. Thanks for listening. Music